Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 14th, 2011. This week, episode 223 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Back with me in the studio again this week is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Joe, it's fun to work with you. Good I'm day, I'm glad Cliff. you're here. Welcome, welcome back to the beautiful Pittsburgh area here. I also have on the line, we will bring in Valerie Bender. She's at the world headquarters of IAQ Training Institute in Central City, Pennsylvania. And, of course, at the controls is our engineer, Austin. Stone Cold. No back. All right, today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question and interview with Jack D. Thrasher, Ph.D. Dr. Thrasher will be joining us from Ontario, California today. Look forward to a great interview with him. Of course, we'll have our usual halftime and roundup segments. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of iaq radio when you inquire about their services and products All right, folks, know how to listen to the show. You just follow the link on the invitation or go to our website, iaqradio.com. Follow the link there that says go to the show and you can listen live. Of course, you can also download shows anytime from the IAQ Radio website or you can stream shows live from that site as well. And, of course, they're also available from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available for those with ABIH, IICRC, or ACAC continuing education needs. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations to... Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metals, Mars PA, for being the first person to answer the September 30th trivia question, identifying methamphetamine as the substance synthesized by chemist Nagai Nagayoshi in 1893. Congratulations. Also go out to John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Springs, Florida, for texting, texting in last week's uh, correct answer as two teaspoons, and that is the amount of assorted particulate the average person inhales every day. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, October 14, 2011, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. Which chemical or substance naturally occurring or man-made can claim to be the most toxic substance known to science with acute toxicity as a reference and we are not including nerve gases? Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. The, this week we have Dr. Jack Thrasher. Dr. Thrasher was educated in California with a B.S. in zoology, chemistry, and a Ph.D. in human anatomy, cell biology from UCLA. He taught human anatomy, histology, physiology, and embryology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and at the UCLA School of Medicine in the 60s and early 70s. He was a consulting toxicologist that did testing on the safety and efficacy of medical devices, drugs, and cosmetics from the mid-70s through the mid-80s. And since 1984, he has consulted in environmental toxicology, immunotoxicology, and human health effects from toxic exposures to private citizens as well as for practicing physicians. He has collaborated in many scientific peer-reviewed papers on formaldehyde, mold and mycotoxins, hydrogen sulfide, and insecticides. He is an author or co-author on the adverse health effects in humans following exposure to damp indoor spaces. His most recent manuscript, published in Toxicology and Industrial Health, is titled the Biocontaminants and Complexity of Damp Indoor Spaces More Than Meets the Eye. This manuscript reviews molds, gram-negative and positive bacteria, mycotoxins, endotoxins, beta-glucans, galactomannans, particulates, and MVOCs present in damp indoor spaces. We welcome Dr. Thrasher, and we have some uh, music for introduction. Well, I process Manaboy, and I'm telling you no lie. I work and breathe among the fumes that trail across the sky. There's thunder all around me, and there's poison in the air. There's a lousy smell that smacks of hell and dust all in me hair. And it's go, boys, go. They'll time your every breath. And every day you're in this place, you're two days nearer death. And it's go, boys, go. They'll time your every breath. And every day you're in this place, 
All right, Dr. Thrasher, do we have you on the line? All right, yeah, I'm here. How are you doing today? Great. Welcome. How about, uh, you know, it's great. We really appreciate you joining us. I know you're busy uh, testifying and you're traveling on the road, but uh, we appreciate you calling in from your hotel room. Um, let's go back to, the, I guess, the 60s when you got into toxicology originally. What prompted your interest and uh, sparked your interest in studying toxicology? Okay, well, actually, I was uh, on the faculty at UCLA, and uh, when I think back on it, I was using some nose drops that were uh, to, uh, to clear up a sinus problem, and uh, uh, the nose drops were uh, used a, a, a mercury compound. Okay, and I say, well, wait a minute, you know, mercury's bad for you. Is it? <laughs> I better look into this. So I started doing research on mercury and uh, ordeno referral compounds and publish some papers on that and I thought and then shortly uh, you know, a few years later after that the FDA uh, made the company take their product off the market because it contained a, a mercury compound hmm. Doctor do you personally or someone in your family suffer from a chemical injury? I think what's going on today is there are people who are more sensitive than others chemical exposures and a person like me probably has good genes although I may be damaged and I don't know it you follow yes but there are people who have genetic polymorphism who are high, highly sensitive to 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 these foreign chemicals it has never really bothered me now I have the lady I live with has pretty serious asthma and she can't get into environments for example that contain perfumes and things of this nature because she gets into an asthmatic attack, so she's in the more sensitive category. Follow? Yes. Do you think there are more people like that nowadays that are sensitive, have environmental sensitivities? Well, yeah, I've been dealing with these type of people for years, uh, since the 1980s, uh, early, about 1988. And how I got interested in it in people is that... uh, I interviewed and talked to individuals, elderly people, and even younger people, who lived in mobile homes at that time. And they were chronically ill. We couldn't figure out why until we started looking at the materials that that the mobile homes are manufactured out of. And they were using formaldehyde-containing particle boards and things of this nature. So we started testing the formaldehyde in the mobile homes, and they were elevated. That's the reason why they were getting sick wasn't only formaldehyde, but it was that was the clue. There were other chemicals that were present too. You follow? Yes, sir. What is to- encephalopathy? Toxic encephalopathy. Yes. Well, basically, that's. A, uh, I had that question on. I'll give you an idea. I had that question in the deposition, and somebody said, "Well, this isn't generally accepted in the medical community." Well, I got on the internet and. In the international, uh, you know, uh, international library of medicine, and just typed in toxic encephalopathy. You know, there were twenty-five thousand references. So, toxic encephalopathy means there has been brain damage uh, to portions of the brain, and uh, these individuals then go on and develop uh, neurocognitive deficits, as one example. If you suspect you have uh, neurotoxicity, I can suggest that. 
a self-test that you one can do for themselves. They can go in and take, when they take a shower, uh, close your eyes and see what happens. Uh, generally, people with this type of toxic encephalopathy, when they close their eyes, they lose their balance. And that's, that's, that means that there's probably upper motor pathway damages that have not been recognized in the neurological examination. Uh, in order to maintain your balance, you use both vision as well as a vestibular. So it's not a vestibular problem. It is an actual orientation uh, uh, w w with visual, okay? And then go on and test these individuals fur further. You'll find out they have problems that decrease in visual contrast acuity. In other words, they can't pick out different, different shades of grays and things of this nature. I hope that answers your question. Yes. What okay. you you now do a lot of work with water damaged buildings, and I'm I'm curious what caused you to get so involved with water damaged buildings and the related health effects. Well, water damaged buildings, uh, uh, the related health effects are multiple. Okay, uh, but uh, generally these people just don't feel well. They develop multiple health problems. They're both toxic encephalopathy, uh, just generally not feeling well. Uh, I've seen individuals with asthma. I've seen individuals with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Uh, I, the worst case I've seen so far is, is a young lady in her middle 40s uh, who now has muscle wasting disease. We can't figure out why she's ha having it. She's negative, for example, for uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. She's negative for anything and everything, but she has waste, muscle wastage. She's losing muscle mass. And she was exposed to very high levels of Stachybotrys, Trichothecines. Uh, we tested her apartment with Trichothecines and other, other mycotoxins. And so it has this puzzle. So I see a variety of illnesses. I've got a, 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 another thing that I, uh, a group of individuals up in Ohio have contacted me at a hospital. And we, there are 12 cases of transverse myelitis. These people, some of these individuals are paralyzed from, from the waist down and can't walk. Others have been able to recover at the point where they can walk, but, but they need aid in order to walk. One of them is a physician, by the way, but yet, you know, the, the directors of the hospital are denying there's a problem. So, uh, you know, the type of illness that we're seeing varies considerably around the country, but yet, on the other hand, it's always a water damaged building that appears to be the trigger. I'm going to just briefly review some of the key points in this paper we want to discuss in a little more detail. We've got a little technical problem with him hearing us, but the biocontaminants and complexity of damp indoor spaces more than... What Meets the Eye is the name of the paper. It's Jack D. Thrasher and Sandra Crawley. And I just want to start with the abstract. It, it starts by saying there are nine types of biocontaminants in damp indoor environments from microbial growth that are discussed. And indicator molds is the first one. Gram-negative and positive bacteria is the second one. Microbial particulates is the third one. Mycotoxins is number four. Number five is volatile organic compounds, both microbial and non-microbial, which I, I believe 
and I'll have to ask Dr. Thrasher, I believe the non-microbial would be the result of the water damage breaking down building materials. Six is proteins. Seven is galactomannans. Eight is the beta-glucans, glucans, and nine is lipopolysaccharides. So there's this soup of, of biological and some non-biological contaminants in these water-damaged buildings. And the doctor, Dr. Thrasher has gone through and put together a paper along with Sandra Crawley that discusses all the implication of all these different biological contaminants being in these water-damaged buildings. So we're hoping he's going to get back on the line with us in just a moment here. Now, they also go over the fact that water intrusion into buildings permits amplification of not just the fungi and the bacteria, but protozoa. And that's an interesting component of the paper as well. And I also wanted to uh, get his thoughts on the uh, background of the paper here where he goes into some history of water damage and some discussion of the investigation of water damage buildings. So I hope we've got him back on the line now. Dr. Th- uh, Dr. Thrasher, do we have you back? Yeah, I'm here. We've got a much better connection. This All morning. right. Excellent. Okay. Good. That was the problem. Let's go ahead. Uh, I was just, while you were gone, I started to discuss this paper with our, our listeners, the biocontaminants and complexity of damp indoor spaces, more than what meets the eye. I'm, I'm curious, you seem to focus on the fact that there's more than just mold in here, and, I, and I've underst- as I understand it, that is a big focus of yours, that we should be looking at all of these different biocontaminants. Can you tell our listeners why you think that's so important? Oh, oh, yes, we should be. Uh, the, uh, there's been, in my estimation, an overemphasis on mold and microtoxin to the point where that's all people want to talk about. You can visibly see the mold. I can understand that, okay? And then the mold can produce the microtoxins, which are highly toxic. But what people are not observing is the un- the bacteria that are not obviously visible. And there are some very dangerous bacteria that grow in these indoor environments right along with the mold. And the bacteria produce toxins. And some of the toxins are synergistic with the mycotoxins. So we also, many of these bacteria are infectious to humans. Uh, I'll give an example. I had a case in Hawaii where we were isolated both the bacteria and the mold, the sinuses of the two people in the home that were present in the home. And so they had to go see Dr. Donald Dennis and have surgery removed. And then we did PCR DNA analysis. We found the same bacteria, and we found the same mold from the materials removed from the sinuses. So here's an individual has a dual infection. And the thing that bothers me most about this is the doctor will treat the bacterial infection and forget about the mold, or treat the mold infection and forget about the bacteria. You follow? Yes. So you you have a combination that's going on, uh, and we need to further define this indoor environment uh, better than what we have. Uh, Relying strictly on mold spore counts and mold is wrong, in my estimation. Uh, I'll give you another example. I'm going to Bermuda in December to be on the witness stand at two buildings there. And we analyzed the building for both mold and bacteria. And here are the following bacteria that we found in these buildings. And they're in the air, Club Ciela. Uh, 
Acetobacter, Pseudomonas, Proteus, uh, and then the other one we found was Bacillus species, particularly Bacillus cereus. Now, Bacillus cereus causes diarrhea, much similar to Salmonella. And the individuals in the one building that we found the Bacillus cereus, they were having chronic episodes of diarrhea. Uh, and <laughs> what they're doing, in our estimation, they were being infected by the indoor air by Bacillus cereus. And, and, and once we discovered that, then the people quit eating their lunch and stuff. But, you know, the building's still contaminated, and I don't know what we're going to do to get it cleaned up. I'll give you some examples that we're seeing, all right? Let me follow up on that, Dr. Thrasher. You know, I I work with people who do indoor air quality investigations, indoor environmental quality investigations, and it's tough to get the uh, to have the resources to do the type of sampling I see you've been able to do in some of these specific cases. As a baseline, what you know, when someone has a, a an indoor air quality issue or a water damaged building issue. What kind of baseline investigation would you recommend? Well, what I recommend is uh, multiple testing. Uh, you can do air sampling if you want, but we know enough about air sampling today that it's highly un- unreliable and it is not related to the outdoor fungal count. Generally, what we'll do, we'll, we'll do an air sample uh, just to get an idea of what's floating in the air. We do it two ways. A, we do it uh, just normally as you walk in the house with no disturbing or into the building. Then, then we follow it up with we disturb the indoor air. And you'll be shocked what the difference is. For example, in one situation, we found three or 400 Aspergillus penicillium per cubic meter in the undisturbed air. When we disturbed the air, it was 250,000. How do you disturb the air? Could you describe that for us? Well, we use aerosol. Uh, you can use uh, sterile aerosol uh, cans of various types. We use the uh, trifluoral ethene compound. You just spray it four or five times, uh, short sprays, uh, three three to five seconds. Do it four or five times in a row. Uh, and then you wait approximately ten minutes to let things kind of equilibrate in the air and then take an air sample. Now, do you spray it toward the floor, toward a surface, or just in the middle of the room? Spray it around the room. Otherwise, you can spray the wall, or you know, spray it towards the wall, spray it towards a piece of machinery, or whatever you want to do. Just kind of randomly spray it around. I'll give you an example. Uh, we went to a workstation in which Stacky Bothers was in the building, and this is the workstation containing computers. So we disturbed the air around the computers. We found Stachybarctus in the air after we disturbed it at 5,500 spores per cubic meter, which is unheard of for Stachybarctus. So it's telling me that the computers were contaminated, and, and, and the workstation was contaminated where these workers, where, where these people were working. You follow? I do, and I, I read that in one of the papers you sent me. I found that very interesting, and it made me think that that's a, that's something I had never thought of was to, you know, get to stir up the air around the computer keyboard and see exactly what was had settled, I guess, in the keyboard. Is that the way you did it? Yeah, that would be the keyboard and also inside of the computer, too. Uh, you know, the, 
like a computer I have at home is an old computer. I got this giant box sitting on the floor next to it. You should disturb around that computer too, because it has fans and things of that nature. Uh, so we're going about the type of testing. The other thing I do is, uh, you know, I'll take dust samples, uh, okay, from various places in the home, and you should take. And I generally it's multiple, four or five, and then we'll randomly perform ERMI tests. And all I'm interested with respect to the ERMI test is the PCR DNA analysis to, to give me the species of the mold. And I'll take areas that have hardly ever been cleaned, such as refrigerator coils, you follow? Mm-hmm. Under, underneath the washing machine. <laughs> and then I'll go to other areas in the house that have been somewhat cleaned, including the carpet, and look at the things. And you'll see a difference in distribution of species of mold depending upon where you take the sample as well as the uh, species of the mold, wherever you take the sample. Uh, I found one refrigerator in a home that, uh, that for example, we found for coffee seeds that greater than 500 parts per million in the coil dust from the refrigerator. It's a source of accumulation. That refrigerator is going to recycle, and every time the people said they went to the kitchen, they got sick. Hmm. So, the, you know, the indoor air quality people are really not looking at the entire environment, and it needs to be done. Now, of course, this testing is expensive, but it needs to be done if somebody's health is at, at issue. You know, that you bring up an, a, a difficult point. It is expensive, and not everyone can afford to do that. Is there some other less expensive indicator we can use? I, I was at Indoor Air 2011 this year, and they said the three things that seem to be present whenever there seems to be health problems in indoor environments was discoloration or staining, I guess, um, uh, an odor, any kind of a, a musty odor, and I believe the third one was, you know, actual um, visible moisture problems. Do you have any other tips that you would give to people? Well, you know, that, that's that's a difficulty if they have limited funds. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know what to say, but I would say that take two different types of samples, dust samples. One that has historically been there ever since the problem has been there, such as the refrigerator coils, you follow? Mm-hmm. And one more recent in which you vacuum and clean the area, but and compare the two, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, uh, you can do a, a, a PCR DNA analysis depending on the number of species that you want to look for, uh, for well, I think 150 to 350 dollars per per sample. It's well worth the investment. It gives you an idea of what is going on. The other thing that an individual can do is just take swab samples of surface uh, to various areas of the home and, uh, and culture for bacteria. Now, bacteria cultures are fairly inexpensive, uh, 45 to $65, dollars, uh, depending on what you want to do. And EMSL uh, is a good one. They do a good job with culturing with bacteria. They actually identify the five most common genus and species if you ask them to do that. And uh, you want to know what bacteria you're dealing with. The other bacteria that they're back culturing for, which requires special bacteria, are a group called actinobacteria. And we are finding these in the homes. And the actinobacteria are potentially very dangerous organisms. 
You know, in the paper, you also mentioned that we should pay more attention to aspergillus. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could comment on that for our, our listeners. Yeah, right. Well, aspergillus, uh, depending on the species, species they're using as the most dangerous uh, group, in my opinion, because they are potential pathogens of humans, both uh, immune-compromised and non-compromised individuals. Uh, we got Aspergillus fumigatus. I have a case uh, I'm working with uh, in San Diego, in which the woman has Aspergillosis, and we've identified Aspergillosis in the lungs by by doing sampling. It's in her home, and this is what the different. She's suing because she lost her business. She's very ill and everything else. And this is what the defense says. Well, and she spent 95 percent of her time in the home uh, because she worked out of her home. The defense is claiming the only way she could have gotten it because the spore counts were lower inside the home than outside the home. So the only way she could have gotten this aspergillosis was by walking down to her mailbox. Hmm. The most ludicrous, insane thing I've ever heard. People spend 95 to 100% of the time in the indoor air. So 90 to 100%. And this woman was right about close to 100% because she worked out of her home. And the other thing is aspergillus and some some penicillium species produce a very dangerous uh, mycotoxin called gliotoxin. And I, you asked me a question regarding that because somebody had looked at gliotoxin, uh, gliotoxin in individuals with aspergillosis that had cancer. Remember that? Yes. Okay. Now, that's the only study that demonstrates the presence of gliotoxin uh, with individuals with infections with various species of aspergillus. And they looked at four different species of aspergillus, and that's a different case. The most common one was Fumagatus, but there was Terry's, uh, a couple others I don't recall. I have to go back and look at the I paper. think Niger and Flavus. Flavus. What's that again? I think uh, Niger and Flavus, or Flavus, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. Yeah, they were the other two. It was Fumigatus, Taurus, Niger, and Flavus. Yeah, Aspergillus Flavus is a notorious producer of aflatoxin. And uh, uh, the idea that what needs to be done with Aspergillus Flavus, it is fairly slow-growing and has an optimum temperature, temperature of 37 degrees centigrade. Uh People are culturing this at 25. Culturing their cultures, when they do culture for bacteria, 25 degrees centigrade. So those molds that grow more readily at lower temperature will crowd out the aspergillus and they'll miss the aspergillus. So they need to culture, do the cultures at 25 and 37. When, they do, when we do it at 37, we often find aspergillus flavors. You follow? I do. I do. Well, Dr. Thrasher, I've got to take a short break and thank our sponsors. And I want to, when we come back, I'd like to ask you to kind of go down through the nine biocontaminants that are present and maybe comment on some of your thoughts on those different biocontaminants that are present in water damaged homes. Association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. 
visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, we're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Jack Thrasher. And uh, Dr. Thrasher, do we have you back on the line? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm... Great. Now, we, we talked a little bit about there are nine biocontaminants, or you break it down into nine categories in this recent paper, and we've talked a good bit about molds. We can talk more about that in a moment. We talked a little bit about gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria. The third category was microbial particulates. I wonder if you could comment for our listeners for just a moment on microbial particulates. And and I didn't notice anything on mold spore fragments. Uh, And if you could comment on that, I'd appreciate it. Well, this work dates back to 1998 or 1999 with Dr. Gordy in Poland. And it's now being taken up by Dr. Opponent's group there on the East Coast, and I think she's in South Carolina. I'm not quite sure. I have to go back and look. Anyway, what happens is that under normal, everyday condition, such as television, walking, talking, using your telephone, turning your... All the little activities we have in the home, uh, for some reason and somehow, through through, uh, energy can actually fraction up the colonies of bacteria and fungi and produce particulates. Now, the particulates range from less than one micron up through the size of spore and even larger. No one is looking at the less than one micron fraction. Now, if you look at the work that came out of Dr. Strauss's laboratory with Dr. Brazel, is that they were able to demonstrate that this with stachybotrys, that the mycotoxins are associated with fragments less than the size of spores. In other words, these minute fractions. Now, the other other interesting thing is Dr. Rapone's group, and then Dr. Gorney also demonstrated it, that the fine particulates are some 500 times greater in concentration than the spore counts. So if you have a spore count of 500, multiply that times 500, You've got, uh, what, 20, uh, 25,000 fine particulates per cubic meter there. 
Now, the fine particulates can enter the body generally uh, by inhalation. And when you inhale these things, they'll enter the body via two mechanisms. One is down in the alveoli, you know, and if they're small enough, they can cross the alveolar membranes and actually get into the blood. But generally what happens is they'll release their toxins to get to the blood. The other thing is when they get into the nasal cavity, uh, they can bind up in the ethmoid sphenoid area and release their toxins directly into the brain via the olfactory tract because there's no blood brain barrier. Now, this work has been done by Dr. Colin Garcegrinas uh, in uh, you know, and children and children and young adults in Mexico City looking at the fine particulate. So this is a great concern, and 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 the people indoor air are just not even looking at this fraction. Oh, we we mentioned a little bit about mycotoxins, which was the fourth component that's in your paper. I'd like to skip that for a moment and go to. The volatile organic compounds, both microbial and non-microbial, could you comment and summarize for our listeners what you discussed in the paper about those two? Non-microbial are the everyday things in the furnishings that we use, for example, perfumes and uh, uh, cooking and uh, outcasting from new furniture and new carpeting, things like this. That's that's referred to as the non-microbial. But the Microbial is a group of some two to three hundred uh, uh, volatile organic compounds that are, people are just now beginning to look at. And they contain aldehydes and ketones and a number of things that are very irritating to the respiratory tract. And uh, they are part of the indoor air. So what we're living in is we're living in a soup in a water damaged building. That's the way I like you know, a vegetable soup. We'll call it that way. How's that? <laughs> that's a that's a great description of it. Um, let me just. I've got a text question about the um, the three indicators of of problems in a home. Doctor Kreiss from NIOSH said that the three part negative health predictor based on the NIOSH workplace health investigations were when water stains, odors, and visible mold growth are all present at the same time. I think I messed that up a little bit on my earlier one, so I just wanted to make sure I got that out and cleared that up, Dr. Thrasher. Let's go to the next category on your paper here. We had the uh, proteins. Can you comment on the proteins? Well, uh, mold and bacteria produce, they have a variety of proteins in order for them to live. You know, they have enzymes of a variety of types. But but when when the carcasses, uh, call them carcasses, or when the bodies of the mold and the bacteria die, these are released into the environment. And these can become antigens or allergens, as you want to call them. And one group, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Pesca's group has looked at one group of proteins that are, that are potentially serious proteins. Uh, it's called the hemolytic proteins. Uh, Remember clear back with the Cleveland people, they had stachybotrys and stachylysin. Uh, and stachylysin uh, is a hemolytic protein. Uh, so the, uh, Dr. Pesca's group took a look at, you know, there's aspergillus and penicillium and the other, other organisms that were in those Cleveland homes, and they found that uh, they also produce uh, uh, these hemolytic proteins. So, therefore, we can't point our finger strictly at Stachybotrys as being responsible for hemorrhage, for bleeding, you follow. Uh, 
Yes. But we also have to look at the other molds that are present because they do produce the same type of um, uh, uh, hemolytic protein. Yeah. So anyway, that's all I can say about that. There are just a variety of proteins that these organisms release into the environment that can be allergens and antigens. Okay. Let me get your comment on, on number seven. I'm not familiar with this term, so I hope I pronounce it right. It's galactomannins. Galactomannin. Well, there are two types of polysaccharides produced by uh, mold in general, and also uh, that's one 1,3-beta-glucan, and another group is galactomannins. Uh, galactomannins are a very complex, uh, multi-sugared uh, 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 how do I want to put it? Well, they're complex uh, related to the glucans, but they are really a separate group. Now, but both groups are irritating to mucous membranes. There's no doubt about that. And, the, and these glucans can cause inflammation. And the last one is the lipopolysaccharides. Could you comment on that, LPS and endotoxin? Oh, the endotoxin, yes. Uh we get back to the type of bacteria that we're finding in indoor air. We are find, finding gram-negative bacteria, and a whole variety of them. I mentioned a few earlier in this conference now. Uh, the, uh, the endotoxins are a, polysaccharide, you know, a lipopolysaccharide that is produced, uh, that is in the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. And when they die, it's released into the environment. And this group, uh, you know, the uh, lipopolysaccharides, I prefer calling them endotoxins. That's the old term for it because that's what I keep remembering. Uh, you know, these are very irritating compounds. They synergistic they uh, or can cause uh, exacerbation of asthma, for example. They're irritating to the mucous membrane. And uh, the drug companies are very afraid of uh, uh, this type the endotoxin because they are fever producing can cause a fever of systemic illness in pharmaceuticals. So these are in the environment. The other thing is that the endotoxins uh, have been shown in vitro and in vivo. This is in both uh, tissue culture and in animals to be synergistic with some of the trichotrophies to enhance uh, the toxicity of both groups. So they are present, and they are being ignored. And we're finding them in some of these buildings in extremely high concentration, because, and then also we're finding the gram-negative bacteria very, very high, millions and millions per, per, uh, per, per swab uh, that we're finding. And, uh, so they're being ignored, and, they, and we have to take a look at these and realize that they are present, and they can add to the toxicity of the indoor environment. You know, Dr. Thrasher, when we while we're discussing this, I just keep running by in my head. I've got, you know, my son happens to be sitting in the studio here today. I've got Cliff Slotnick, myself. We work a lot with people who clean up water-damaged homes. And I'm wondering if you've ever had any experience working with people who clean up water-damaged homes and any health effects that they may have suffered from performing these activities or if you're aware of any research that addresses the concern of what type of issues they may uh, they may be you know uh, I guess the the issues that could result from the type of work they're doing no I haven't had uh, you know, these type of people haven't come to me as to the health problems uh, I have not had an experience with them per se 
But yes, but they should be very cautious about what's going on. Uh, you know, when I go into a building I know is contaminated, I put on a, a, a complete protective suit, and and, uh, uh, and if it's very serious, self-breathing out outfits, I won't go in there, even though I feel like I'm resisted. I will not go in there and expose myself to these conditions. Uh, and that's what these people should be doing if they're doing it. Uh, they should be completely protected from anything. Because as soon as they tear up carpeting or tear into a wall or whatever they're remediating, they're spreading these fine particulates and spores and bacteria and everything everywhere in the house. Right. Uh, you know, and they're, and they're saying put up a plastic wall. Well, I, I've seen plastic walls that weren't, weren't put up very well and uh, released these organisms into the rest of the house or the rest of the building. So, I mean, that's my only comment. They've got to be careful and realize that they're working with some potentially dangerous situation. Could you comment on the cleanup activities once you've, you know, once you find these organisms in a water-damaged home? How far do we have to go in cleaning these up? I mean, would it be based on who's there and what type of sensitivities they have? I mean, we, you know, it's, again, very expensive to do an extensive cleanup and, you know, replace and remove all the contents, etc. Can you comment a little bit on that? Well, I've seen situations where they could not clean the home up sufficiently for the original occupant. They couldn't get back into the home. So, you know, that's an individual problem. Uh, the other thing, too, is often, and I'll give you a classic case, and I've seen this going on. I was involved in a situation up in Yuba, California, with a brand-new home built in 2004. The people move in, and they've been sick ever since. The home then gets remediated twice. So we go up there, and what we're finding is as follows. Uh, we, take, we take our moisture meter, and we go around and we check the entire slab of the home. We found 30 areas in the slab in which moisture is coming up through the slab, at 58 to 75%. We pull back the carpeting, we pull back some of the tiles, and the slab is cracked everywhere. And then we go around and we test the windows. And this home has been remediated twice. We test the windows, and we find water, uh, high moisture level underneath two windows, so we tear off the outside stucco on it, and uh, the two windows had bent window frames. Otherwise, they put the windows frames into the home bent. Therefore, there's no way they can seal it. But we found other areas in the home. So I often question whether or not an appropriate testing has been done to look at the entire home and where all the sources of water intrusion are coming into the home or into the building, you follow? And if you don't do a complete uh, you know, a complete analysis of the, uh, and testing of the entire situation, remediation may may not even be the appropriate situation because in that deposition, the the defense attorneys asked me what we should do with the house. I said tear it down. There's no way you could repair it. You've got 30, 30 or forty cracks, major cracks in the foundation and the slab. So how how can you repair it? Uh, and. Uh, so anyway, that's my answer to, to that, is I'm really concerned about actually the nature of the initial investigation of the home. Okay. And then, or, the home, or the building. Is, was it done correctly? Did they look at everything and everywhere? You know, okay. so because I, I, you know, I have this, I get to pick things that interest me, and uh, since I'm, I'm the host here, I want to ask you a question about this chronic rhinosinusitis, and I've seen information on this before where 
you know, I guess it was, um, I want to say Mayo Clinic, that uh, had, there was a study that a, a significant percentage of this chronic rhinosinusitis was caused by fungal infection, I guess it would be. But I'd rather you kind of tell me first, what is chronic rhinosinusitis and what are some of the symptoms of it? And then how do you, how do you treat it once you find out you have it? Yeah, that's a good question. Dr. Potico and Shabaka and a whole host of individuals recently published on this whole issue tried to define exactly what, what, you know, the various conditions that, that, uh, or the diagnosis of chronic sinusitis. So that's an interesting question. Uh, the thing is that it's, it's caused by both, in my opinion, by what I'm saying, by both mold and bacteria. And what happens is the organisms get into the sinuses and they form a biofilm. If you don't break up the biofilm, antibiotics and antifungals are not going to treat the condition because the, the purpose of the biofilm is to, to protect the organism. So they get a continuous reflare-up of the chronic sinusitis. Uh, and uh, I've talked with Dr. Michael Gray about this situation, who's down in Benson, Arizona, and, and what he's been able to do to get some success to clearing it up is to, uh, you know, he has a special preparation he uses, enzyme preparation, which breaks up the biofilm, and then he treats them with their antifungals, antibacteria, and they, they get better. The other individuals working in this area is uh, Dr. Dennis, uh, Dr. Donald Dennis in Atlanta, Georgia. He says that if the condition is serious enough, he has to go in and actually remove the biofilms. What would make you suspect you have this issue? Well, you could have a maxillary type headache, Joe. If your sinuses are inflamed, you're going to have fullness. You can have frontal headache, frontal pain, or maxillary pain. Uh, those would be two symptoms of that. Uh, headaches may be part of it. You know, if, if the sinus, sinus uh, infections is up in the ethnoid and the sphenoid sinuses, you're probably going to have to have an MRI done in order to determine just what's going on in those sinuses because that's rather painless. And uh, an infectious process up in the ethnoid and the sphenoid sinuses are dangerous in that they can go directly right into the brain via the olfactory tract. So, you need to see a good ENT specialist who understands that you've been exposed to the organism in the water damage building and probably uh, uh, have an endoscope done. That would be the only thing I could suggest, particularly up in the up point of sphenoid sinuses. Well, that, that helps me a lot. I, I've kind of, I feel bad I've taken over here and I haven't let Cliff get in a word edgewise, so Cliff wants to ask a question. Yeah, doctor, I'm not sure if you can hear me, but I hope you can. Can you explain why sensitive individuals allege to be able to taste contaminants, smell contaminants through airtight sealed plastic bags and containers, and feel residues on hard surfaces? I think most investigators run into people that you know that that have this issue, and I'm just wondering. There's got to be something to it. I'm just wondering why. I, I, I kind of missed your question. Is that something about a bag? I didn't quite understand. Well, what maybe you can hear me a little bit better. We're having some trouble with the sound. But, you know, he was asking oh, that, about... No, that's not it. I just didn't understand the question. Oh, that's okay. That's the problem. Well, 
you know, I ran into the same thing. I just came back from a class this week, and I had a guy in the class, and he said he was on the front porch, and a woman who he was getting ready to do work for told him, I can tell you what type of laundry detergent your wife uses, what kind of deodorant you use, and what kind of perfume your wife wears. And he, she told him all three of those things, and she was right on. And he was he was amazed by this. And I'm, Cliff, I think, is asking, why? how can people do that? How How is it that people are so sensitive? Can you explain I, as briefly, as succinctly as you can, I guess, how is it that some people are able to pick up on these things when others can't? Believe <laughs> uh, me, I don't understand the mystery either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't understand it, but there are people who are able to do this, okay, but I don't know okay. just how they could do it. It's fascinating to all of us, I think, and I, someday maybe we'll figure this out. But uh, it, this whole thing has been very, very interesting to me. I think what we like to do now is we go to what we call our roundup. What we do is we, we try to ask a couple final questions here. And I want to ask you a little bit about multiple chemical sensitivity. I just read an article in the USA Today, again, yesterday, I want to say, uh, there's there's some thought that they're removing funding from the study of the chemical sensitivities that appear to have come out of the first Gulf War. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on multiple chemical sensitivity and what you think may be causing this issue, or if you think it exists at all. MCS, the term MCS has been, been around for, for, for many, many years, and I was involved in the EPA building back in 1980s in which there were a couple hundred individuals furloughed because they had multiple chemical sensitivity, couldn't work in the building anymore, and allowed to work at home. I wish I could give you an answer. Uh, I've noticed that there has been increased research interest in looking for biomarkers for people with MCS. Uh, the latest term that's now being used is more like toxic encephalopathy or, or uh, I, I think there's some form of brain damage, but I just, you know, I don't think anybody's been able to really define what's going on with MCS. But I've seen this going on for years. Uh, people who absolutely respond to concentrations of chemicals in, in their environment that I can't even detect by my own nasal cavity, you follow? When I breathe it, but they, they respond. Hmm. Biggest culprits that they respond to are these various perfumes. Uh, uh, I wish I could give you a better answer than that, but it's a puzzle. All right. Well, I think that's a great answer. I, I like it when people say, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that's great. We appreciate that. And and actually, I just got a text from a listener saying the same thing. It's, it's good. It's refreshing to hear that we don't know certain things. And hopefully five years from now, we'll have a, a more complete answer for that. I think what we have to do is accept the fact these people are responding adversely, but we still don't know why. Okay, that's the key. All right. Go ahead. Have you seen any remediation uh, methodologies that you you like better than others? You know, there are methodologies that use heat, uh, you know, inside of houses, uh, you know, to try to get the you know the nasty things to off gas. Uh, you know, they're chemicals. They're hydroxy radical there are all sorts of different things have you seen any that you're optimistic uh about 
Yes, chemical treatments or treatments that would just rely on heat. You know, they have certain situations where they, you know, superheat the the insides of the houses to try to get, you know, to detoxify different materials that are inside. I just wondered, you know, in your experience, uh, have you ever been impressed with any remediation methodologies? I I recommend they stay away from all forms of potentially toxic chemicals. These people are already sick. Why do you want to add more to the environment? So-called pasteurization, you know, it's going to get something on the surface, but it's not going to get organisms that are deeply embedded. Okay. So this pasteurization method is just uh, just another attempt to make some money, in my opinion, and, and take money out of the pockets of the consumer. Okay. Well, again, we we appreciate, we appreciate your your bluntness on that, and that's that's always great to see. And what we'd like to do, let me ask you about natural cleaning products. Any thoughts on natural cleaning products that are advertised out there? Well, the only natural cleaning products that I prefer using are vinegar and boric acid. Okay, boric acid. What the um, so-called so natural finishing? Compounds that I've seen out there are actually uh, various toxic chemicals that they claim botanical in origin or something of this nature. Uh, I prefer just vinegar, wipe down with vinegar, clean it up the best you can, and follow up with boric acid, wipe down the best you can. Uh, you know, why add more chemicals to an environment that is already damaged? Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me at all. Can you expand on why you like the boric acid? Is it just is it because it's a good cleaner or? Uh, it just say well, it's fairly fairly non toxic. You have to dilute it so you don't burn your skins with it. That type of stuff. But anyway, uh, it's not volatile. It won't get out into the air. And you know, and vinegar. We all use vinegar on a daily basis, practically. So why not use those two two sources to see if it can help clean up your environment before you. Before you go out and add more stuff to the environment. Okay. Well, Dr. Thrasher, before we go, we always like to make sure we give our guest the last word. And what I'd like to ask, first, I'd like to thank you for joining us. This has been fascinating. We've already had some good text messages in, one being, you know, extremely informative and educational show. Thanks to you. And uh, we would like to give you the option to add anything that we missed or make sure that you get out to our listeners any last comment that you'd like to add. Well, yeah, the comment is that, you know, our knowledge of the indoor environment and the illness is changing on a day-by-day-by-day method. I mean, research keeps coming in. For example, uh, uh, Dr. Fisk at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories keeps publishing his articles on the indoor environment. And, uh, and he's publishing it faster than you can keep up with it. And so our knowledge is increasing about the contaminants, about the illness, and and hopefully someday about how we can prevent all this stuff from happening. Uh, so that that's my thing, is just stay on top of the literature so you'll know what's going on to the best of your ability, because often the papers, like I have papers in press, and it's going to take six months for it to come out. But at least ways, uh, if you'll read that paper, then when it comes out, you'll see what we did in this particular circumstance, if you follow. That would be my comment. Quit denying that this exists. Quit denying that there's no health problems. Quit denying 
denying the divine and get involved and start reading the literature. I think that's some, that's some great advice, and uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I've got more papers and literature now than I can probably read over the next couple of years. You, you, there is a lot coming out, and more and more it seems like every month, and I want to thank you for your contribution to that, and thank you for joining us this week on IAQ Radio. Okay, well, you, you people have a great weekend, and I'm going to be flying home tonight after I get off the witness stand today, okay? All right, great. Thank you. Thanks again, Dr. Jack Thrasher. We want to thank our guest, Jack Thrasher, Ph.D., for joining us today. An interesting and educational interview, and I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man. A little technical problems here, but we'll clean that up in editing tomorrow. I didn't get to bring uh, Val Bender in, but for those of you that uh, listen in regularly, you listen to Val the last few weeks, and she'll be helping me clean up some of the editing. I also want to thank Austin Stone Cold Novak for taking care of the controls over there today. But most importantly, we want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We had a nice group on board here today, and please come back and join us again next Friday for the next edition of IAQ Radio. IAQ Radio Production. Call recording has been completed.